Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 3? Acts chapter 3, we are going through the book of Acts. We call it the Acts of Christ through the apostles, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Acts chapter 3, we have just finished um, what happens when God gets a hold of a church. It has the marks of being dedicated to the apostles' teaching, to uh, fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer, and that there is this sharing and things in common. And now we turn to what God is doing with the preaching of His Word. And here we see Peter and John as they are going up to the temple at the ninth hour, in the hour of prayer. I remember when I was, um, I was shocked with this because I was saved late in high school, and I was starting to understand the hostility that people have towards Christ. I didn't get it in full picture yet. I think in high school people were still trying to figure out what was what. And I didn't see it until I saw it. I didn't see it in its full hostile, full-orbed um, hatred towards Christ until I was in college. I went to a secular college. And one of my majors was religious studies. And as I was studying it and I would take classes, uh, we would study Islam and we would study Tibetan Buddhism and we would study um, all these other religions and, and viewpoints. And, and I would see and I would talk about the exclusivity of Christ, his uniqueness, his glory, how he could not be put on the table with Buddha. He could not be put on the table with Muhammad. He could not be compared with them. He is not to be compared. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And all of a sudden, I see this uproar. And I, I was the only one in class. And I saw the hostility. Christ was not unique in their eyes. Christ was one of many options. You can live a good, virtuous life apart from Christ. You don't need Christ. The afterlife is open to whatever you desire it to be. As long as you sincerely held it. There is no view that you can be sincerely wrong. How dare you say that Jesus was different at all. To say that Christ is the only way, truth and life, is to invite ridicule and rejection. You know this as a Christian. If you stand for, as a Christian, you know this. In Acts chapter 3, we see how man just does not recognize, and here primarily it's the Jews, he does not recognize the majesty of Christ, he does not recognize his uniqueness, he does not recognize his utter need for him. He rejects him wholeheartedly and his salvation. So through this text, we're going to be going through this text. This is I, I don't think I'm going to finish this sermon, I think I'm going to do... Three points, but I'm only going to do points one and two. But through this text, as Brother Mike has read, God is speaking to you through his scripture this morning so you would recognize your need for a Savior and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. This is why this text is in the book. This is why it's speaking to us this morning. We believe that scripture is finished, but he speaks through his word as it is proclaimed, as it is understood, and as the spirit illuminates it. Now, 
To trust in Christ, you must receive his message. That is, his gospel, which simply means good news. There are three aspects of the gospel as it is given here in the text of Acts chapter 3. And first, in its transitional form, as we look in the book of Acts, there are things that we can take that will last throughout the perpetuity of the church. And there are things that are transitional as we look through the church. Now, the first one, the first point as we have here, if you have notes, if you, uh, do, are we out of notes? We're out of notes, okay. The first point here is the proof of the gospel. God grants Peter and John a supernatural sign. Peter had the gift of healing. This is a gift that was given to the apostles. If you remember, we were looking here in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. There was the presence of God. There was a healthy fear and reverence for him. And many wonders and signs, and now here it is. Here's the phrase you have to hold on to, okay? Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And here we have, here we have the, the focus, the centering of these gifts, these wonders and signs on the apostles and their chosen associates. The close associates for the authentic, authentic authentication and exposure to their preaching. The miracles were not given in an end and destination for themselves. The miracles were given to authenticate their preaching and to point to something greater. And we're going to talk about what this greater is. You see, many ministries today focus solely on the healing, focus solely on the preaching. I mean, focus solely on the miracles. In fact, they plan it to happen. Six o'clock, we're having a Healing service. I don't know how that happens, right? They can plan a sovereign act of God, right? And we're going to see as we're looking at this text, it is not what the biblical pattern of a miracle is. You notice there's the proof of the gospel. God gives these supernatural signs, these supernatural miracles to authenticate the apostles' preaching. It is a pattern, even in, in the Old Testament, when Moses and Aaron came, they were able to do miracles and signs to authenticate what they were preaching. Now, this is, a, this is temporary. This gift was temporary, this gift of healing. There's going to be a disappearance of this gift as you read the text, as you read the New Testament. But the t later on, this gift was given so that we can authenticate what they were preaching. But later on, what is the next test and authentication of preaching and teaching? Where it's the completed canon of scripture. That's what happens. So that now, this is the reason why we don't need the miracle of healings and the gifts of tongues and things like that. Because right now, we have the completed canon of scripture. Okay? Which we are to discern. First John chapter 4 says... Uh, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Galatians 1.8 says, Even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Now we have the completed canon of scripture. But this gift resided with the apostles 
and their close associates. It was for authentication and exposure to their preaching. Healing was not typically given as a sign to believers. Okay? It was typically given, typically given to unbelievers. And it was not an ongoing Christian ministry. Right? They didn't say we're having a healing service. If you, if you look at some uh, different places, one commentator notes that he, uh, Paul told Timothy to take wine for illness. Paul said that Trophimus was sick at Miletus. If he had the gift of healing and it continued on for believers, why didn't he use it then? Because it was a sign for unbelievers as he proclaimed. Now, this is not to say, this is before we even get into the text, this is not to say that miracles do not exist. They still exist today. I think God still works as an answer to prayer. Healings still occur. What we are saying, what we are saying is that the healing, the gift of healing does no longer resides in a man. We can pray and sometimes God gives miraculous healing. But this gift of healing as an authenticating sign of new covenant preaching, gospel-centered preaching, is no longer given. But that's not to say that God does not do miracles. Do you understand the difference? He still acts and he still moves and he still works wonders and we ought to pray for big things and he saves souls and he changes and he works in your life and we ought to be sharing all this back and forth as we fellowship in him. Amen? So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. He still works. All we're saying is as an authenticating sign. Now, Let's look at the poor plight of this man. Verses 1 and 2. He says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb has, was being carried along, whom they used to sit down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who are entering the temple. Notice he says, It's a certain man. And the, his condition was that he was Lame from his mother's womb. The word there for lame means crippled. It could also mean deprived of a foot, which was probably the case. Maimed. I remember when Jeanette and I and the family we served in South Asia, it was a very, very sad thing. We would see these poor kids with shriveled up limbs on the street because their parents, their own parents made them crippled. So that they could beg for more money. So that you would have more pity on them. And as you walk, you see these shriveled limbs with no power. And there's no muscle. There's no, at, there's no uh, strength. All the muscles have atrophied. And this, I think, is what is being told here. It is a man who has been lame, who, has, who cannot walk since his birth. He had no strength. It has this idea of being bent out of shape. And notice, he was being carried along. He couldn't even fend for himself. He couldn't even beg by himself. He needed help to even beg. And says, whom they used to set down. This is every day. This was a, you, can you imagine this? Not being able to move. A constant, unending trial. Every day the trial is there. Doesn't change. Every day you're dealing with it, right? 
He goes to the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful. This is a public, and everybody knew this guy's trial. Everybody knew who he was. Some took pity. Most didn't even care. In order to beg alms of those who are entering the temple. There was no government assistance at that time. No way of earning a living. Absolutely helpless. Hopeless. At the mercy and pity of another. And sometimes we say as we look at this text. And we look at miracles and, and such. We say oh that's great. But what does this man have to do with me? Why are we even dealing with this? We divorce ourselves from, from even entering in and understanding what the text is. So we don't want to take away from the historicity of this. This actually happened. This man actually existed. Peter actually healed him by the power of Christ. Right? This was an actual crippled man who actually begged. But God uses this as object pictures of you. Because we don't see ourselves this way. We see ourselves as able. At least some part and some measure of our salvation we can, we can donate. Sometimes we, we see ourselves as, as able and strong sometimes. And this is, this is really a picture of your utter helplessness in your sin before God. We're not saying that this is not a man who was lame. This, is, this was a man who was lame. He was healed, but it is a picture of your utter helplessness in your sin before God. See, the Jews did not see this about themselves. They did not see themselves as helpless so long as they believed in a works righteousness. I remember in the country where we were serving, when someone was lame or crippled, they blamed it on karma. And that's what that person deserved because of the life that they lived before and they were, that they were reincarnated into. And so if you help that person, you, you uh, negate their own self-works righteousness to get out of that karma that they received. It's awful. So they looked at them as utter helplessness in your sin. Before God, you are the lame one who cannot care for yourself, that you must have another care for you. You are the blind man since birth who cannot see the light. You are the leper, the outcast, because you are riddled with disease. You are the dead, lifeless, and cold. Romans 5, 6 says, for a while we are still helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If you think you could make it to heaven, if you think you could live this Christian life, if you think you can fulfill God's perfect requirement on your own, you are mistaken. You need to come to realize your utter helplessness. Then you see the gracious gift. Verses 4 to 8, Peter along with John fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk. He, gave, he began to give his attention, expecting to receive something from him in this gracious gift. 
You see, a lot of times when folks are going through trial or when folks are having problems, and this is we who, who hold to the gospel, who hold to Christ, we have to understand this. That most folks believe their biggest problem are the life problems that surround them. Poverty, sickness, health. Most folks believe that that's the problem. And in fact, if, if you talk about even solutions of the problems of this world, what is the problem? Why do we have these shootings? What is the problem? Why do we have famine? What is the problem? Why don't we have good water in different places? So we have all these different, uh, all these different problems, but they don't talk about the biggest problem. The biggest problem that man has is that he is in rebellion against Christ and he needs a savior. And people do not know this. The beggar did not know this. You did not know this. We see this all the time. I see folks who are, who are sometimes get, getting divorced and the husband comes to church all of a sudden and he thinks he needs, what he needs most is his wife back. And as important that is, what he really needs to reconcile is his relationship with Christ. And this is what Peter and John are doing. Yes, the beggar has a need, absolutely. Yes, the beggar has, uh, has a, a serious need, but his greatest need, brothers and sisters, please keep this in mind, the greatest need of anyone is to have their sins forgiven in Christ. And this is where ministries lose their way. And this is where organizations lose their way when they're no longer gospel-centered. So he began to give them attention, expecting to receive something. He thought his biggest problem was being handicapped and disabled. His biggest problem was really sin. Peter says, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And what we have, basically what he's saying is what we have to give is more valuable than any treasure. More important than what money can buy. And then he says, in the name of Jesus the Nazarene, this means uh, to, to say this in the name of Jesus. It's not a hocus pocus word. It's not saying abracadabra. What he is saying is in the name, in the reputation, in the power, in the authority, and in the character of Christ himself. He sees him by the right hand, raises him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. No physical therapy needed. And with a leap he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with him walk, walking and leaping and praising God. And notice it was not predicated on the person's faith. He didn't say, oh, you need faith. So I, if you don't have faith, I can't heal you. This is what the faith healers say today. If you don't have faith, I can't heal you. This is a crushing false doctrine. I think I told this story before. Um, we had a student in South Asia. His fiance had tuberculosis. It was in a charismatic church. They told he and they told him and his fiance that they needed to stop taking medicine and to have faith. She ended up dying. And then the elders of the church said, it's because you didn't have enough faith. 
That is damning. That is false doctrine. That is not what we see here in Scripture. When God acts sovereignly, He can act wherever He desires. Amen? And so, this is not the model. That is not the model of what, how God acts. It was an instant sovereign choice of God so that He will spotlight Christ and His gospel. And you notice... There's a remarkable response in verses 9 through 11. All the people saw him walking and praising God. They were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. Notice, they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The word there for wonder means astonishment, mingled with awe and fear. It is a word that... uh, emphasizes the experience of being in reverence and in fear and and in awe. It's used in Luke twice when Jesus casts out demons and they say, what kind of man is this? It's used when he puts the fish into the nets and they say, what kind of man is this? And Peter goes down on his knees when he realizes who Christ is. Something really out of the usual is here. The word there for amazement is bewilderment, terror, being put out of place. So all of the people, as they saw, because they knew who this guy was, they knew him back and forth. They seen this man in the marketplace, probably crossed him a thousand times. He had no hope. Sometimes they had pity. Sometimes they didn't. And now he's walking and jumping up. And they knew something had happened. See, by the power of Christ, Peter now had their attention. By the miraculous healing for the real, real reason. Here's the real reason. It wasn't to center on the miracle. It wasn't to center on that. Now he had their attention to bring glory to Christ by preaching his gospel. And now he turns. The miracle certainly blessed the man. But now it gives rise to bring glory to Christ. And so secondly, we see, secondly, we see the judgment of the gospel, the scorned Savior. The judgment of the gospel, the scorned Savior. Verses 12 to 18. And of course, as we want to know what the good news of the Bible is, we have to know what the bad news of the Bible is. Why is it good? Because it saves me from my sins. Christ saves me from my sins. I have to know what the bad is. So what is the bad? Verses 12 to 13 and uh, verse 17. We're going to skip a little bit here. Verses 12. Notice, you missed him. Here's the first thing. This is how you scorn the Savior. This is why you're being judged is because you missed him. You missed him. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The word, of course, he is uh, referring to the men of Israel. He was speaking to the Jews. These were folks who claimed to know God, claimed to have a relationship with God, claimed to have a covenant with God. And Peter assumes that they do not have a relationship through Jesus Christ. That is his first assumption. Peter assumes that they do not have a right standing before a holy God. Because of their prevalent rejection of Christ. And yet, he says, why do you marvel? 
Why do you gaze? Why are you staring at us? He says, as if our own power or piety, we had made him walk. We didn't do it. He negates the fact that the source of power and holy living was in them. It was in Christ himself. And here he turns to speak to them. He's men of Israel. And now he's connecting with them. He is telling them that what we believe is continuous with what you believed. What we believe about the Messiah is the fulfillment of what you believe. It is the culmination of what you believe. It is in connection with what you believe. He says the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus Christ. What, what uh, Peter and John say now, as Peter is preaching, he says that all the fathers of the faith, what you are looking at right now, we are connecting ourselves to the same God who you love and who you claim to love. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Genesis chapter 12 is the unveiling of the Abrahamic covenant. And it is further specified in Isaac and further specified in Jacob. And we as Gentiles, Gentile believers in Christ, we fit under that blessing. It is promised to the Jews, but we are blessed by them. It says here in Genesis chapter 12, you don't have to turn there, I'll go ahead and read it to you. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and so shall and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we know this as we study these covenants. The Abrahamic covenant has the land, the seed and the blessing. The land, the seed, and the blessing. And as we are, as Peter is preaching, he says, This same God told you about the Messiah, and you missed him. You missed him. Stresses the continuity of the same worship of the same God, yet they missed Christ. Now he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. What does that mean? Well, to glory in Christ, to glorify Christ, means, means to highlight, to exalt, to put a spotlight on all that he is. It is a pattern in the scriptures that he was to suffer and then be glorified. It is to focus on Christ himself. And you notice when Peter preaches... He doesn't just preach Old Testament principles. He doesn't just preach prophecies. He doesn't just say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then you could understand. He brings it to its full culmination in its full picture. Now this is what we are talking about, this blessing that we are to receive, the umbrella of blessing under Abraham, now that we receive in the new covenant in Christ is who we glory in. It was a pattern that the Messiah was to suffer and then to be glorified, to be spotlighted, to be focused on, to receive respect and honor. Peter himself would later on write in 1 Peter 1, he says, as he, um, he's talking about um, prophets seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them 
was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. There is a pattern in Scripture in the New Testament of Christ's sufferings and the glory to follow. He is seated at the right hand of God, bringing honor and glory to him. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Since we're in Acts, it's an easy jump. Chapter 2, verse 32. Part and parcel with the gospel is not just that Jesus died, not just that Jesus resurrected, but that Jesus is, has ascended and is glorified. Notice he says in verse 32, This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Here it is. After he has done his work, he has been exalted to the right hand of God, the position of favor and of love, and he sits down at the right hand. Because he is completely done with the work. Peter says we glorify him. Peter says the Father glorified him. Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Same thing. Acts chapter 5 and verse... Look at 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God, here it is, exalted, you could say glorified, to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Peter's telling them, you missed the Messiah, who is the source of all the blessings we would have in the Abrahamic covenant in land, seed, and blessing. Peter's indictment is you missed him. Secondly, his indictment is you rejected him. You rejected him. Look at verses 13 to 15 of chapter 3. You rejected him. Look at 14. Oh, look at the 13, I'm sorry. His servant Jesus. Notice the, the juxtaposition, how he... He compares it side by side. This glorified servant of God. High and lifted up. Exalted. And then he, he puts it right next to this. Whom you delivered and disowned. In the presence of Pilate. Whom he had decided to release. Notice he says. Whom you delivered and disowned. The word therefore delivered means to hand over. To betray this glorified person, son of God, you betrayed. He says, you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. The word there, disowned, means to deny. You refused. You renounced. You disregarded. You paid no attention to. It was, the word was used when Peter denied Christ three times. It is the opposite of baptism. Do you understand that? This is why baptism is so important. That when you stand in the waters of baptism, you are claiming and you are owning Christ. And he's saying here, you did this to him. The holy and righteous one. And now he's using exalted language. The holy, the separate one. It is a title of the Messiah. Isaiah uses this all over. In Isaiah 43, 15, he says, I am the Lord, your holy one. 
the creator of Israel, your king, you denied him. Acts chapter 2, 27. As we were reading, look at verse 27 there. Clearly it's a reference to Christ that we have labored through Acts chapter 2. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That was David, verse 31, looking ahead and speaking of the resurrection of Christ. He then says, you put to death the prince of life. It's amazing. If we go back in chapter 3, you disowned him, you betrayed him, you gave him up, and you put to death the prince of life. Listen to that. You put to death the prince of life. John 1.4 says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 11.25 says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. In paradoxes of paradoxes, the prince of life, the author of life, the source of life, the giver of life was put to death for you, saint. The one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. So you missed him. You rejected him. You doubted him. You doubted him. Notice verse 16. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus, in his power, his authority, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him, given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. You misjudged him, verse 18, as we come towards the end here. You misjudged him. He says, and now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers also did, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And we see this even. Why don't we go there? Go to Isaiah 53. You have to go there. In its clearest, clear example here of the Messiah coming as a suffering servant. What's incredible is they had this text and they didn't see him. They rejected him. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hid their face and was despised and we did not esteem him. Same kind of language there, huh? He was despised, we did not esteem him. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet, he, uh, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. Notice the personal pronouns there. Our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned his own way. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb yet that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. Look at verse 10. 
the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. All the prophets spoke of him, that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer. And it was fulfilled in Christ. But sometimes we, we look at this text and we would say, that, well, that wasn't me. I, I didn't do that. I wasn't there. You know, apart from Christ, you did do that. Apart from Christ, until Christ stepped into your life, you missed him too. You didn't see his importance. You rejected him too. You doubted him too. You misjudged him too. Romans 3 says, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips. We all turn aside. Yes, even if you grew up in a Christian family. Yes, you were a sinner at birth. Before you were born, you were conceived in sin. Now, we're not going to say, all right, let's close our books, amen, and go home, right? Because there is hope, amen? Because this was me. This was you. I heard about Christ. I didn't want him over me. I even knew the reality that about the cross and, and Jesus dying on the cross. But I didn't want him over me because I wanted to stay in my sin. You see how Peter says it. This is not a legal infraction. Sometimes we think of it like this. Like when I sin, it's just simply a legal infraction. Kind of like I'm passing the speed limit and a cop comes indifferent to my situation, writes a ticket, doesn't feel anything, gives me a ticket, and then I'm on my merry way because now I've broken some moral code, some moral law, Yes, I've broken a moral law, but that is not where the real offense lies, brothers and sisters. The real offense lies in the personal affront that you've done to Christ. Apart from Him, when we were lost, when we didn't seek after Him, we, Peter says, it is when you reject the gospel, it is not a rejection of simply facts. It is not a rejection of principles. It is a rejection of his person, of who he is. The Son of God is a rejection of the Messiah. Your delay is missing him. Your delay is rejecting him. Your doubting is rejecting him. You misjudging him is rejecting him right now. And I love that Peter doesn't stay there. Amen. We would be lost. But here, so we're going to dip into the next sermon just a tad, okay, because I don't like to leave just right there. <laughs> Where's the hope in that, right? Here's the hope. Here's the hope. Notice in verse 19. Therefore, Peter turns and he pivots. Repent. And return so your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus to Christ appointed for you. 
oh, I love this language. Okay, let, let that, uh, my uncle, I like it when my uncle's in town, he takes us all to dinner. I love that, right? Uh, he took us to a nice Japanese restaurant, and sometimes I always order saba. You know what saba is? It's mackerel that's grilled just perfectly. It's my favorite thing. You guys might be going, yuck, but that's my favorite thing. <laughs> I like to put it in my mouth, and I like to savor it. Maybe, okay, maybe you guys can't relate. Maybe steak. Okay, go ahead. Put in whatever you want, okay? I like to savor it. Brothers and sisters, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, here is glory. Savor this. Repent and return so your sins may be wiped away. You have not out this Christ. You understand? And if you don't know him right now and you've sinned a heap, and you've dug yourself in a pit. There is no sin that Christ cannot wipe away. He wipes it completely clean. This, is a, this word wipe is a word that, that uh, was used with papyrus. They didn't have acid in the ink. So it couldn't bite into the papyrus. And so what, what they used to do is if they didn't let it sit, all they had to do was just wipe it clean. And so all of the words would be wiped away. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, all your sins are washed. Is this not hope? Is this not cause for celebration? My sins are forgiven. Sometimes uh, some of my kids might be going through a trial. And I'll look at them and grab their face. And I'll say, is Christ still reigning? Are your sins still forgiven? Do you still have eternal life in him? Then your biggest problem has been solved forever. Amen? Father, we come before you. We missed him. We rejected him. We didn't want to listen to our loved ones who were preaching Christ to us. And then in a moment, you turned our hearts and saved us. You caused us to see the glory of Christ, which we ourselves spurned. And so we pray, Father, would you help us to glorify you? Would you help us to sing even this last song? And Father, I pray if there is one who is rejecting you right now, would you soften their heart? It isn't even a matter of evidence. We know that. Their conscience and creation tells them. It is the heart that is unwilling to understand and bow to Christ. Oh, Father, do your work. Bless this wonderful Lord's Day. Thank you for our dear friends and family that are here. Help us to sing. In Jesus' name, amen.